I started to uh, look further and then I started to realize the people who were making all the money were the master franchises. So I was like, well, I'm going to become a master franchiser because that's where you can go. And so I looked at a couple of different opportunities and got really, really close to pulling the trigger. And I've always kind of lived my life that you don't really have to make a decision on whatever you're doing until you've got that paper in front of you. So whether it's a job offer, whether it's a franchise opportunity, whether it's a business opportunity, whatever it is, you don't have to make a decision until the final moment. Welcome to the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. My name is Chris Thompson, your host of the show and the head coach of the Student Works Management Program. This is a show dedicated to young and ambitious entrepreneurs and ultimately the leaders of tomorrow. Each week, we will bring you an inspiring interview or message to help you create the future you know you deserve. Let's get started. Hey, leaders. Thanks so much. And welcome back to the Leaders of Tomorrow podcast. I am uh, super excited and uh, wanting to share some fantastic news. Uh, one of our uh, alumni, Steve Frook, has, has, is part of a group that just had an exit and sold the organization that he'd been working in for the last seven years. And that is a really, really huge deal, as I'm sure you can imagine. Because of the disclosure agreements that he signed, and just really didn't know what he could say, what he couldn't say, and frankly, just would prefer, number one, not to breach any agreements, not to hurt the company that he left, not to hurt the company that bought them. He just felt it would be safer just to not say anything. <laughs> so uh, so what I wanted to do was, was, was announce it, which is totally okay, and then share some of the takeaways uh, that Steve's had since the podcast that we did. Um, and we did a podcast, episode number 41, and we're going to re-release this as part of my introduction with a new introduction to share about the takeaways and, and the uh, the success that he's had. But just to update the podcast from the podcast, basically since 2019, Stephen moved from being the VP of sales to the senior VP of global sales. And then in 2022, he became the CRO or chief revenue officer and really was instrumental and really uh, close to the deal and, and how the deal got closed and the success of that. One of the things that that Steve's also been able to do is is find a new opportunity. Um, you know, and he took the summer off. They sold the business in the spring, um, late spring, took the summer off and then he is off as a head of business development of a company called Amplero, uh and the brand that he's working on is Curanos and it is still working in the same institution of helping financial institutions, large banks basically serve their customers better. So one of the takeaways Steve had and he wanted to share on the on uh, for, for me to share on the podcast is making sure that our our leaders are aware one great opportunity for people is to see an opportunity that is really clear and go join that or that movement in the uh in the economy. So he very clearly saw uh when he joined a company called Ethica Back in 2007, there was very clear that banks were going to need to digitize. There were more and more of what they were going to provide was going to be digital, less and less in banks. And you didn't have to be a futurist or, or, or anything, you know, super, super smart to see that. I think that was very clear. And he went and he moved in that direction. So he went from Ethica to Nomus to Horizon, which he exited. And now he's with Kyranos. And Kyranos is looking to use machine learning and AI 
uh, with this technology that Ampleros uh, created to double the incremental monthly revenue and retention for these financial institutions. So um, it is it is a big big play that they're they're operating at. They're, they're a huge opportunity. They've got a a big customer that is already winning with the technology, and now they're looking to spread the technology across the marketplace. So I, I, there's a lot here in the podcast that I think you're going to really love and you're going to learn a lot from it. So I recommend listening. And um, you know why we do this. We do this to attract other leaders like Steve. Steve had about this program in the mid, late uh, 90s. And he's had an incredible career basing a lot of that success, as he says, from this program. So if you know any amazing young leaders who want to have a huge career, please share that, that this podcast with them, send them to studentworks.com or send me an email at cthompson at studentworks.com. We are almost through our recruiting season, our best ever. Uh, we have very few spots left, but some spots available. So please, if you know anyone, take those actions. Have a super fantastic day. Thanks so much. So thank you so much, Steve. Uh, you know, we, we've got Steve Brook here today and, and really excited about, about, about Steve joining us today and, and um, uh, you know, just a really, really fascinating career. He spent a, a number of years with us at, at, at Student Works and was a top performer. Um, so, Steve, what was it like uh, for you before our program? Yeah, well, good morning, Chris, and uh, thanks for having me on. It's a uh, absolute pleasure to uh, to speak with you, and uh, I've been really enjoying the uh, podcast of other uh, student work painters over the years. So it's almost felt like I've been able to reconnect with some of these people, which is great. So, what was life like before student works painting? Well, I learned very early on that uh, I had a passion for money, and uh, I decided that. Uh, I could uh, work really hard and uh, and ultimately you know make make money, which was great. I for some reason at an early age I had this joy of seeing my bank account balance go up and up and up. So I I worked a ton. So I worked a ton uh, throughout high school, working uh, you know in the grocery stores. I had a lawn cutting business, and it seemed like there was a lot of opportunity to 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 make money. So so truthfully, I, I worked a ton. So I think from a very early age, I sort of uh, valued money and I understood that hard work uh, was was really the recipe for, for for making it. So yeah, awesome, awesome. And what, what's your what was your biggest frustration if you can remember as a teenager? Uh, you know, before you got started in your business. Yeah, so this will make you laugh a little bit. So my biggest my biggest frustration was that so I, I worked at AMP, so the supermarket chain, which is now Metro. Yeah, and I could make fourteen dollars and fifty cents an hour doing that. I worked at another grocery store, and I could only make seven fifty an hour. So my frustration was honestly that, and I learned this really early on, was is that with this unionized job at AMP, where I could only work twenty four hours a week, I could make twice as much as I was making elsewhere. So it it started to you know, and I learned this really early on, is is that you know when you were looking for opportunities that not all opportunities were the same. And you'll, you'll probably remember that not, you know, not too long ago, Sunday shopping um, didn't exist. And when it first came on, you know, we were really excited, uh, myself and friends that were working at AMP, because all of a sudden we were able to get paid double time. So we were, we were oh, I don't know, maybe 
16, 17, and all of a sudden we were making $28 an hour, which was a lot of money at that time. No, so so I, I think the frustration in my part, and it just was more eye-opening, was is that you really had to pick your, your opportunities. Not all opportunities were the same. And um, just, you know, every opportunity had their constraints as well. And then the constraint was just the maximum number of hours that you could work based on the union being part-time. So, yeah, so that, that was probably one of my constraints with regard to uh, equality, I guess, of hours anyways. So. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. I know this is something that we're going to bump into in the future is, is, that, is that you have continued to be, throughout your career, very entrepreneurial about finding the best opportunity and what's the best opportunity, what's the best, best way for me to build that bank account and find opportunities that, that invigorate me and you enjoy, et cetera. Um, and so you saw that in early age. Um, so, uh, so that's, that's neat. So what do you still rely on from, from student works? So I think the biggest one is the work ethic. So what you put in is what you ultimately get out. And uh, just thinking of our conversation today, I was sort of chuckling and smiling about how we would wake up in the morning really early to get to the paint shop, to be able to get the supplies, to be able to get the crews, to be able to get them working. And you would go through your day, and then all of a sudden it was six o'clock, and you had a choice to make. You had a choice at six o'clock on whether you were going to go knock on doors and talk to people about paint jobs, or you were going to go do something else. And most of the time, myself and my crew, we would literally start our marketing campaign at 6, 6.30 at night. You would run it until 8.30, take them out for some food, and uh, and then you're up again in the morning. So, so I think a big part was just that understanding that the harder you work, the more focused you can be, the more better results that you're going to get. So I think, that, I think that's one big part. Um, and then just organizing yourself is the other one. So the just that concept of making sure that you knew what you were going to do each hour of the day. And if you don't have a list, if you don't have a plan on what you're going to accomplish, then lo and behold, time starts to vaporize, right? So we've got 24 hours in a day. We know we've got to sleep seven or eight hours a day. You've got family commitments. You've got other commitments. So then you've got this period of time where you've got X number of hours. And the question is, what are you going to do with your X number of hours? Right, so there's got to be some exercise involved. There's got to be some fun involved, but it's also the, the thing where if you can plan your day and you know from a time blocking standpoint what you're going to do at each moment, then you're going to have a much more productive day. So I think that all comes back to student work days where we had our agendas and you'd you'd, you'd write down hour by hour what you were doing, and then yeah. when you followed that, your productivity skyrocketed. Yeah, yeah. I think those are probably the key points. So yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously a former operator of the program as well. And, and getting those habits when you're young is so powerful. Just like, and just, you know, keep on looking, keep on, what's the next best thing to do? What's the effective use of my time right now? You know, just having those concepts run through your brain on a consistent basis really impacts your productivity and your long-term success. So, yeah. And uh, I think from that also just comes that prioritization, right? So we all likely have more things on our list than we possibly could accomplish in each day. Oh, yeah. So you start looking at that, you know, you know, the importance and uh, urgency quadrant and you start focusing in the, uh, the upper right-hand quadrant. And if you focus on those things, then the other things uh, maybe matter a little bit less. For sure. For sure. And so, so, you know, tell me about, you know, just your, you know, walk me through, uh, you know, post, post student works, you know, what you chose to do, what your career path was. 
you know, and looking back, maybe, you know, lessons you learned about those decisions you, you made? Yeah, absolutely. So from a from a student works painting standpoint, I ran the franchise in Owen Sound for two years. I was a district manager in Ottawa and sort of eastern um, Ontario. And then I was a general manager for two years. And that's kind of when we went into the Quebec market and, and, and did a few other things. So after after that, so after my my five year journey uh, with Student Works Painting, I had the I had the opportunity to move to Washington D.C. And I think in our twenties, when we look back at some of the decisions that we made and how fast we made certain decisions, <laughs> some of those decisions were like if you if you pause now and you think about some of those decisions that you made, who knows what you might have decided? But you know, when you're in your twenties, you you uh, you think fast and. Uh, Run quickly. Uh, so I had an opportunity to move to Washington D.C. And actually, you were you were kind enough to help me land an opportunity there. I'm not sure if you remember, but at that point, you were part of an organization called YEO, it's a Young Entrepreneurs Organization. And um, I talked to you about this this concept of moving to Washington, and and you were kind enough to put out. And I remember it was uh, the message to the YEO uh, group in the Washington D.C. area, right? Where you basically said you had this. Uh, young, hotshot, good-looking. I'm not sure if good-looking was in there or not, but, but it was young, hotshot individual. Definitely yeah, definitely was. Definitely was. So, <laughs> so, so the, the, the idea was is that you, you blasted this message out. And I had five, five responses. And I still remember this. So I went down um, and uh, had five interviews. I ended up having four job offers from um, those, those five interviews. And I selected a company that, was quite small at that time. I think we had about maybe 12, maybe 15 employees. And it was a company called Autoscribe Corporation. And uh, they'd come up with this neat concept where you could actually take a check over the phone. So by getting the routing number and the transit number and information on the bottom of the check, that through our software application, you could uh, reprint that check and then deposit it right away. So you know, that, that market was really targeted to, to groups who wanted to have a payment today. So if you think about credit card companies, they're placing phone calls and saying, you know, XYZ customer, you owe us X number of dollars. Their their problem that we were solving was that response that they would usually get, which was, oh, don't worry, the check is in the mail. And of course that check (laughs) wasn't in the mail. So 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 the the idea was is that you had the software platform and and so I started I started working uh, with this company. And like I said, there was 12 individuals and I think that was really important for me to be able to go to a small company, entrepreneurial company, and be able to rise really, really quickly within that organization. Because young young organizations, of course, are thirsty for uh, people who are happy to take on more and more, and uh, and then of course deliver results. So I figured out I figured out how to sell this product, and I should have really figured out the kind of the math behind selling, so the number of calls that you needed to make to be able to yes. do all of these different components. And then I just ran it, right? And that that's what I knew I needed to do. Similar to how many doors do you need to knock on to be able to get X number of estimates? It was that same concept of how many phone calls do I have to make? And it was about, it was a lot. I think it was around 50 calls a day that you needed to make to be able to get X number of demos to be able to, and then you continue on. So we, we had a lot of fun in that business. And um, the, the great part about that business was is that you sold this platform and then you charged per check that was printed. So you created this big business from a residual income standpoint because people uh-huh. continually call up and order more metered uh, components for you. 
And then over time, that business changed um, and it became into electronic ACH transactions. So we were a leader in that in that component as well. And um, I I decided at that time, and I remember that I was going to get my it was the accredited ACH professional designation. And it was really something that bankers really just got. I mean, that was something right. that you, you right. got. But I decided myself and a number of people in the company, we said, we're going to get this because we're going to be the best people uh, to be able to do this. Because the, the business was changing. And all of a sudden, you could do these transactions, one-time transactions. They didn't have to be recurring. And there was a whole bunch of different nuances. to it. So, so we got really smart on a whole bunch of, you know, fine minutia information, wrote the exam, passed the exam. And then that really enabled us to be credible in the sales process going forward with this new, new, new type of business. So I worked with a you know a good friend of mine still still talk with him Robert Poland and he he was the uh, the founder of the organization and he and I really worked well together. He was the he was truly the entrepreneur you know one of the the truest entrepreneurs that I I, I have worked with where he was continually starting up new businesses. So we had. We had a lot of fun along the way because we were starting up different things. We had this core business, and um, and then we grew it. So at a, at a very young age, um, I had this large title of executive vice president um, of Autoscribe, and we I mean, we grew the business to 40, 50 people. We had good revenues, uh, patents on the technology, and I had a really good run there for I guess about eight years. Yeah, and uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. So then around that point, around eight years, I was getting, I guess, probably close to my 30s. And I, uh, my now wife and I, every year in the States, and we absolutely love living and working in the States. But every year we kind of check in and say, OK, are you, are you up for another year of doing this? And the answer was typically yes. And then all of a sudden you get to kind of your 30s and you start thinking about, hey, maybe maybe we should get married. We should probably have some kids. Right. Oh, and. What are our families doing, right? So we haven't, you know, we, we we've been living in Washington D.C. Both my wife and I grew up in Owen Sound, so we we decided to to come back to uh, um, Toronto and uh, and uh, explore that. And I had this big bug, still wanting to get into franchising. So I was very kind of interested in that. And and once again, I I called you up and I said, Chris, what are your what are your thoughts about opportunities in Toronto? Uh, I just went back to the well again and again, Chris, uh, to you. It's super helpful, and, and I appreciate it. So, so I came back, and I got working with a, a car wash franchise. And they had an interesting uh, business where they had to deal with Loblaws to be able to uh, put car washes in. And these were hand-wash-type car washes. So what our plan was was really to be able to sell franchises and then to be able to run the, the, the organization. So had it. Had a good time there, learned a lot about franchising, learned a lot about the hustle that was required to be able to run that business. And that taught me a lot about franchising as well. So when I was there at a at one of our, our depots, we could do a great business because I was going up to customers. We were talking to them. We were getting the keys to their cars. We were pulling it over to the bay. We were washing the cars and we could we could do quite a business. But when I wasn't there, um, our operators who were attracted and our franchisees that were attracted to that business weren't necessarily, we'll call them sales professionals, uh, very good operators, but their you know, excitement and willingness to be able to go up to, to people and ask them to wash their car didn't always happen and those results weren't there. So it, it became sort of an interesting business where, where you started to realize that the franchise that we had 
was was really good for the right operator, right? right? And I think that's kind of interesting when you start thinking about it, and it's probably franchising 101, but it took me a little while to realize that was that the operator that you had to have um, had to have certain skill sets to, to be, be able back. to do that. You can't just put up a sign and yes. expect people to come in. Yeah. And, and if that franchise is a case where you put up a sign and people come in, your sales are likely going to be limited to a certain component, and you personally may not be able to change those sales. So I'm thinking, you know, let's say, say a submarine sandwich uh, yep. franchise, you do put up your sign, you do some marketing, I'm sure you do some catering and stuff to be able to boost sales, but there's a limit to how much you make, right? Because you're relying on that sign, their, their, their yes. national advertising. So, so that was, a, that was a, an interesting, um, that was an interesting experience for me to be able to get into that franchising world. Yeah. Oh, and, and Steve, just, just for the leaders, like I, I always love to sort of pause and just, just there's a learning here is, is that, is that there is an identification for, for someone to sort of, again, identify um, what type of franchise works for me? What, what, what type of skill sets do I need? What type of capabilities do I need? And, and one of the things that, you know, when, when, when you joined our program, I think we were less clear about what we needed about our young entrepreneurs entering our program. Now we're really, really clear. We have uh, actually a uh, predictive index, all sorts of profiling matrices and, and really understanding what we need and really clearly identifying it so that people go, okay, this is what I need to do. I need to be like Steve, someone willing to talk to people, someone willing to engage people to talk about the home services they may have so that they can move forward. and. You, as you'll see, leaders, Steve's career is really impactful because, you know, executive vice president means one of the top salespeople. A lot of times people don't understand that. <laughs> executive VP, top salesperson, president, best salesperson, typically, right? And, uh, but, but, uh, but what, was, what was next after, the, uh, after that franchising opportunity? So I still, I still had the franchise bug and I took some time to be able to start investigating other franchises. Because in the back of my head, and from my experience it didn't work, it was really the path at that point where I thought I, I belonged was I wanted to be able to start up a business and have it. So I went on this, I don't know, maybe it was three or four month period where full time I was investigating franchises. Right. And I got teamed up with a great gentleman named Gary Prenovo from FranNet. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the yes. FranNet organization, yes. but uh, you know, not only did he provide guidance, but we became friends, and we just started to really understand different types of franchises um, and what that meant to me. And I remember, you know, I looked at this uh, business, and it was uh, an M&M meet, and I, I thought. For, for whatever reason, Chris, I thought M&M Meats must be a good business because you've got no, like, your, your stuff's all frozen, so nothing's getting thrown out, right? So, so you've got no loss on food. It's got this like one aisle, it's a small area, so your rent's going to be cheap. And then you hire someone to be able to work there. And, and as I started to look, though, at, and it's not just M&Ms, there's a million different franchises out there that are like this. You end up writing a, a check for three, four hundred thousand dollars to be able to buy your business and, and it might be more now or less or whatever the case might be. But but what you're really doing is is buying yourself a job. Yes. And and it's that concept of, oh, so you started to look and then you started to go around to the operators of 
different franchises and had heart to heart conversations with them say, how much are you really making? Right. Because I'm doing this to, to make money and I, yes. I need to know. And you start to realize that a lot of people are spending that three to four hundred thousand dollars to be able to make eighty k a year, which which is which is fine, but that's not that's not what I was looking for, right? So I was looking for this this opportunity. So I I started to uh, look further and further, and then I started to realize the people who were making all the money were the master franchisers. Right. So I was like, well, I'm going to become a master franchiser because that that's where you can go. And so I looked at a couple of different opportunities and got really, really close to pulling the trigger. And I, I've always kind of lived my life that you don't really have to make a decision on whatever you're doing until you've got that paper in front of you. So whether it's a job offer, whether it's a franchise opportunity, whether it's a business opportunity, whatever it is, you don't have to make a decision until the final moment. And, and, and that's okay. And, and that's ultimately... I think that's fair to yourself, be fair to your family, where you're ultimately looking at, hey, I've got this opportunity, I've got this opportunity, what is the right one for me right at this moment? And so I got really close, and then I backed away from from two master franchiser uh, opportunities. Um, and I think it was sort of a self-learning process for me, to be honest with you, and it was looking at right. what was the risk that that was going to make for me and my family from an right. investment standpoint? Right. What was the time commitment that I was going to put into this and then what were the rewards I was going to get. And so that that was a big moment in my life, Chris, was where I actually went, oh, I I actually have this other opportunity, which is to run a sales, uh, to run a sales team for a, a new startup company making X number of dollars with certain amount of options with X, Y, and Z. And you started to look at it and you, you looked at those two different opportunities from an investment required, time and required, enjoyment, risk, all of those different factors. And, and at that moment, that's probably where my road uh, divided, where all of a sudden I chose to go into become what I sort of call a professional sales expert and work for companies as opposed to starting up my own franchise. Right. And just looking at the, the c- comparing the risk and the investment versus just how much I can earn for the incredible skills I've developed. Right. And, and everybody's different, right? So you've yes. got to look in the mirror and you've got to look and you've got to say, and every opportunity is different too, right? So, yes. so, so it's that moment in time, what do I have and, and, and where should I go from a left to right? So I, uh, yeah, so I started working um, in a completely different kind of world, but this is, I started working at a company called Dun & Bradstreet. And at that point, I was running the national sales team. I had, I don't know, seen people from sales engineers and reps being able to report into me. And that was a whole new fun world for me, where basically, in the way I ran it was, you had this opportunity, you had your X number of accounts. And the frame of mind I almost put myself into is this, oh, this is my franchise, right? So these are these are the accounts. These are the resources that I have. This is my variable compensation plan. How are we going to to be as successful as possible? Right. And I learned a, a ton. I had a, a great uh, leader, Tony Molina, um, who taught me a lot um, over the time I was there. And it was uh, it was a good experience for me from a from a Dun, Dun and Brad that Dun and Bradstreet standpoint. What I also learned on that time period, though. Was is that I likely was better suited for working in small organizations than, you know, a two to three hundred person organization from a Canadian standpoint. Right. And and the reason for that is the small organizations 
you can make a real big difference, right? So right. When, when you start an organization and let's say there's less than 50 people or less than 20 people, you, you matter so much more than working for an organization where there's a thousand people. So true. I think that's fair to say. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. And they're also, their growth, the growth opportunity of the right 20 person business is, is really the, an opportunity. They can be still in a, st- a hockey stick growth pattern where if this business is just growing and all of a sudden you have a little bit of a blip, it's like we're, our business is really rocking and somebody comes in and makes it rock a little bit better where this business is, is just moving and you're in that hockey stick thing. There's a huge opportunity for you know, high variable compensation. That's right. Yeah. And a lot of fun too, right? So a lot of fun where all of For a sure. sudden you're going and sorting things out. Which sort of led me to my my next opportunity. So I worked, um, we actually had a we actually had a dinner party and the the CTO of the company, the company's called Ethica. Um, the CTO of the company uh was over for dinner um along with his 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 wife, our wives are, are good friends. And he was talking to him and Trevor Clark and I was mentioning to him what I was doing and what he was doing, and he's like, Steve, we we really need someone to come in and run sales for, for the company. And I said, Trevor, you know, I'm pretty happy where I am. We talked a little bit more. And, and, and this goes back to sort of, you, you always go and have the conversation. Go and have a conversation yes. with somebody. Yes. You never know where it's going to go. And even if it's a low probability conversation, guess what? You're going to go meet some people. They're going to be great individuals. And you're going to yes. learn a little bit more. Yeah. So. I ended up going into the conversation, going into the conversation, and the, the CEO uh, Andre Edelbrock um, was a fascinating individual. There was, I think, twelve people in the company, ten people in the company when I when I started. Um, we were working out of a, a small kind of cramped office, but when I went in for that interviewer discussion, it was it brought back a lot of student work painting kind of memories where you had. The same type of individuals, roughly the same age, all gunned up and and focused on how do we be successful? Okay, yeah. and so so after that, I I remember I called my wife and I said, hey, I I think I've I think I'm going to take this opportunity because this is this is really neat what they're what they're doing, but more importantly, this is a great group of people. Yeah, and and if you can be part of a great group of people, regardless of what you're doing, and be a team to be able to figure something out. Ah, that's a lot of fun. So I was I was at Ethica for five years and and I think we spent the first year, three years of that truly trying to figure out what our business was. We had a right. plan. Uh, we were going to create the the basically a credit bureau for e-commerce transactions, where if you were Walmart, you would check the credit bureau to see, hey, is this Chris Thompson? Has he used this information? Blah, 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 blah. So we decided to do it globally. Uh, so we traveled, <laughs> traveled a ton, went to a ton of conferences, and we evangelized the crap out of this, this concept. And it, it, we really created this, especially early days, created this allure that this company was Really large and had a lot of lot of companies utilizing the, the the platform just because of our energy, our excitement, yeah. and and then and then that was contagious and companies did sign on and we did kind of grow this business. Um, but what we discovered was is that people were 
happy to share their negative information, but not their positive information. It kind of makes sense when you look back on it because the positive information yeah. is all of your customer base. So if you're Walmart, you're happy to be able to, you know, walmart.com, you're, you're happy to be able to share all the people who've ripped you off because that kind of seems to make sense. Let's, let's all work together. But I'm not giving Dell my customer list because Dell will go, yeah. and, it, and it wasn't, it wasn't, we weren't giving a customer list, but there was a, there was a risk um, challenge for the e-commerce companies to be able to, uh, um, to contribute that information. So over time, though, we create a lot of friends. And I, I, our business changed in about year, I don't know, three or four, where we started to form partnerships with the card issuers. So if you think about Cap One or whoever issues a credit card, and they knew about fraudulent transactions because people would call them up and they would say, hey, this isn't my transaction. But strangely enough, they had no way to tell the customer. It would go through this daisy chain type information where the issuer would tell um, the uh, the uh, the Visa network or whoever it was, the Visa network would tell the, uh, the the other individual. And it would take a long time, like 45 days to be able to get back to the customer. So, or back to the, back to the retail store. So what we ended up doing is, is we ended up starting a company, really, it was the same company, but coming up with this vision of being able to get this information back instantly to the retailer. So if Cap One knew that there was a fraudulent transaction on a computer, instantly we could tell Dell about that before they shipped it so they could stop sh- shipping that. Fantastic. And that changed the industry. And that that company you know, just recently sold for, so Ethica just recently sold for, I don't know, for $450 million. I heard um, so obviously one of they, my friends was an investor in that. So I heard. Yeah. <laughs> Completely, yeah. completely, and these these are these are you know wonderful. It was a wonderful company. We 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 had such a great five years there, um, and you know made a made a difference in being able to grow that company. But then we also had a lot of fun along the way as well, right? So my my sort of three creeds in life from 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 a job is is got to be able to make money because the world's an expensive place. I've got to yeah. have fun, okay? Because if you're not having fun in life, something's wrong. And then um, the third component is that I got to be learning. I got to be learning something new because if I can't, I can't be doing the same thing over and over. So I got to be able to, uh, to, 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 to learn. So that probably, yeah, sorry, go ahead. And Steve, sorry. One thing that seems to be also common in where you're working and something for our leaders to pay attention to is you've got good mentors and you've got really smart people you're working with. So, so again, you know, you know, learning, fun, enjoyment, let's go work hard together, those sorts of things. And again, it it just, you know, so work and fun are the same thing. You know, you're going to have as much fun on the weekend this weekend as you will during the week. You know, like, why can't I have fun both times? You know, like this doesn't make sense that I can't. Right. And I know, I know you, Steve, you do. (laughs) Absolutely. No, and, and 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 it's absolutely imperative, right? Because we're, you know, I'm 100% convinced that I'm going to live to 100. So we're only we're only on this earth for 100 years, right? And if you think right. about the amount of time that you spend at quote unquote work, if it's not fun, then wow, what percentage of your life are you actually spending not having fun? So, so I I am a big believer in that, and I can have fun working, I can have fun with problems, I can have fun with challenges, yeah. I can have fun winning, right? So when you're in sales and you close a big deal, of course, that's a lot of fun, sure. but it's also a lot of fun getting to that point, right? Because challenges are fun. And how do we yes. actually get to that point to be able to, 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 to close the deal? So 
So had a blast at Ethica and, uh, and, and learned a lot, met a lot of wonderful, wonderful people. Um, and then I was in my office at Ethica and I looked around and I went, ah, what am I going to be doing next year? And, and, and I think there was a lot, there was a lot of exciting things coming down the path, but I had this itch that I had to go learn something new. And I, and, you know, I think if you think of the five years and you think about creating a company and you think about, you know, all of the challenges that we had along the way, uh, yeah, it was, it was a good ride, but it was also, it was also a tough ride to a certain degree as well. So at that point, and, and I have this other rule that I live by is you can never leave anything that you're doing unless it's in good shape because you could be leaving for a whole bunch of reasons that you can correct yourself. So I, I felt like from an ethical standpoint, from a sales standpoint, we were on a really good plane to, to grow. But what I wanted to learn and what people had said to me all along the way is, is that, Steve, you're, you know, you're a sales professional. And I went, I don't even know what it means to be a sales professional, okay? I just love talking to people. I love talking about the value, and then I love closing deals and stuff. But right. I started to think about what does it mean to be a, a sales professional? And I got it in my head that I needed to go and sell things for a million dollars, two million dollars. $3 million. Because if you could sell something for $3 million, then I think you were a sales professional. And, 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 I and agree. So, <laughs> so that's what I set out to do. So I started to look at a bunch of different companies. And I got to looking at this company called Nomus Solutions. So Nomus Solutions was based out of San Francisco. Uh, they had offices in, uh, in Toronto. And they were selling into the financial institution vertical. Um, and as they started to look at their product, what they did or what they do today is that they help banks set interest rates. So if you think about all the different products that have an interest rate from a deposit account to loans to you know, home equity lines, credit cards, what happens is, is they were provided, providing a lot of insights and analytics to price sensitivity in all of those different buckets and recognizing that somebody getting a loan for $100,000 with a FICO of X um, with other attributes that we overlaid was less price sensitivity than another group. So if you think about this, just imagine a big checkerboard um, and, and there was all these different squares. And right. what our company did was we helped these banks understand who were in those squares. And then we had a price optimization engine that would set the interest rate for each one of those squares based on the objective of the bank. Okay, and the objective of the bank typically was, hey, let's go make some more money, or it was sure. let's increase volume, or it was both. So typically, they wanted them to make more more profit and also be able to increase volume. So I started working with 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 Nomad Solutions, and I I believe in that period of time. Uh, so I was at Nomus for five years. I think in that period of time, I started to understand sales a lot better than I ever had, and. Mm -hmm. And what I focused on was sort of two things, I guess, if I remember uh, correctly. One, I read a great book called The Challenger Sale. I'm not sure if you've read The Challenger Sale or not, I have. Chris. Yes. And in that book, I'll probably butcher the, the explanation of the book. So, so read the book and then you can say, Steve, you, you missed yes. it. But, but in that book, they talked about the five different personas from salespeople. And the, the, the three that I really remember is, First of all, the lone wolf. And if you think about certain salespeople, and Chris, you're, you're, you might be smiling right now because you're like, Steve, you were a lone wolf when you were at Student Works. These, <laughs> these are the individuals that produce like mad, 
don't follow the processes yes. and and turn the organization left and right. But they're so important to the organization because they're delivering delivering the results. They drive lots of results. Yes. Right. So so there was there was the lone wolf that I remember reading in this book. And then there was also the hard worker. So these are the individuals who will be at work at seven in the morning. They will place more phone calls. They will have more meetings. They will do more work than anybody else within the sales organization. And those are the hard workers. There's uh, the relationship guys, which you can imagine what the relationships guys are. But then there was this other category that they talked about. And they had done a bunch of research. So if people listen to the podcast. If you haven't read the book, read the book because they did a bunch of, they did a bunch of, uh, um, of different uh, uh, research on this on top salespeople. And they created these categories. And the most successful category was the challenger uh, persona. And the challenger persona was really enabling a salesperson not to be the traditional transactional salesperson, but to be well, essentially challenging whoever you're selling with a new way of thinking, okay? Yes. And actually bringing value into the sales process, okay? So as yes. opposed to being that smile and dialing person who, who runs the script, hangs up the phone and goes, what if, what if just for a moment you actually stopped and you got thinking about that individual who you were talking to and you thought, what actually matters to that individual? You had an sure. intellectual conversation with that person and then you, you help them think of a new way, arguably the way that of what you were selling, thinking and actually going about their job. Okay. So imagine, imagine if you could be done, be done that. So that, that, that when you're selling, you know, one to $3 million solutions, you have to be doing that, right? Because you're, it's, yes. it's not something that someone's going to buy from a, from a telemarketer salesperson. So that was, really, that was really important to me. And then I also started to do something called Blue Sheets with Miller-Hyman. So there's a bunch of different uh, um, sales things. But from a Miller-Hyman standpoint, I really sort of latched on to that. And I started to realize that in these complex sales, strategy was so important to be able to close these deals. And you had all of these different individuals that you were selling to. So when you sell to banks, one person can't make it make a decision. You're selling to banks. What's the focus from a bank standpoint? It's all consensus buying, right? You've got to get these, you know, and I, I my sales leader at the time would talk about getting all of the puppies in the basket at the same time. And this one's going here. And how do you actually organize everything from that standpoint? And I yeah. and, and through that process, I also and part of the blue sheet is is understanding your your buyers, um, their their influences, or there's a buying influence section on it. And the buying influence section, which really struck me as interesting, was is is what really matters to that individual, right? And and you know, so you're selling this product to this individual. But what really matters is it about making more money? Well, that's corporately what they're probably trying to do. But what is that? What is that individual personally? Really, really trying to achieve. Are they looking to become go from VP to SVP, and they need a super yes. super process? Have have the last three projects that they've done bombed, and they need one that to really is successful to keep their job. Okay, yes. are they are they are they going on maternity leave in eight months, and um, they need to have this process in place on time because right. they've committed or whatever whatever the case is. And I think I think that's when I started to realize. And it'll sound weird, but I started to realize that we're all human. And right. when you're quote unquote selling to somebody, you're not really selling them. You're helping that individual 
accomplish what their goals and objectives are. And if you can build a relationship with people, and if you can really understand what's important to that individual, and it's usually, you know, four whys underneath, right? Why, why does this matter? Why is that important? Why? And you get down to that fourth level of why, you start to realize, oh, I'm not selling them a price optimization solution. I'm selling them whatever it is that matters to that particular individual. Even though they're working at a bank that is huge and has, you know, 80,000 people, it's 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 what actually matters to that individual. If you can get to that, you can you can be a wonderful wonderful salesperson. And I think that's yeah. what's probably lacking a lot in sales is just people yeah. are smiling and dialing. And and it and I, I'll tie it back to student works because I I remember I remember and I probably didn't know what I was doing at the time right so I was <laughs> I was twenty yes. you know driving a hundred miles a miles an hour but I still remember this gentleman in Wyerton Ontario and I got talking to him and it was competitive sell the other guys were there and you know, whoever else was there to be able to compete in the the, the business and what I what I figured out, the most important to this thing, guy, guy, most important item to this guy wasn't the painting; it was the caulking, and and it was the caulking because he was worried about the heat escaping, and he was also worried that if he didn't take care of these windows, he was going to have to replace them, and he didn't have the money to replace these windows. So, For sure. so when you when we think about you know selling whether it's paint jobs or whatever, you you got to understand why is this person. Why is, why is this person interested in buying this paint job? Are they selling their house? Do they just want a quick paint job so that it looks good? Yeah. Are they you know, going to be staying here for a long period of time? Is, you know, are they embarrassed because their house looks a bit shabby? Or whatever it is, what is it? Because they're probably, they're probably not buying a paint job. They're likely buying something else. And if you can start talking about how we're going to preserve your windows, or if we can talk about how a paint job can generate another $20,000 on the sale of your house or whatever yeah. it might be, that's what they're buying. But I think probably previous in my life from that point, I didn't really understand that, Chris. And I may have been doing it periodically, but, yeah, but not to, be, to be successful, yeah. to close the highest percentage of deals that you would like, to be able to provide and this is really important to me, to be able to provide the most value to the people that you're selling so that when you see them four years from now at a conference and maybe you're at a different company, that you're friends. You're friends with these people. Yeah, you can go sure. up, you can talk to them. They will help you refer to your next opportunity. And, and if you do that, then you're, then you're creating this really great world where you're running your own business because they're buying, I always believe this, they're buying Steve Frook. They may not be buying the flag of the company that I'm working for, but they're buying Steve Brook. And that's super important to me is to make sure that is, is that we can keep doing it over and over again. Hey leaders, I hope you're enjoying this episode so far. Since we started this podcast, every person you've heard from has been one of the incredible alumni of the Student Works Management Program. In large part, that's how I got to meet these amazing people and participate in their development. Starting now and only for the next few weeks, we'll be on campuses across Ontario, Quebec, and the East Coast, interviewing students who think they have what it takes to start their first business and get started down the path of entrepreneurship. If you think you have what it takes or know someone who might be interested, visit 
leaderspodcast.ca slash apply and start your application process today. Once again, it's leaderspodcast.ca slash apply. Now back to the episode. What I would say, Steve, is, is they're buying both because they're buying that amazing solution that you help them see value in. And they saw value in all of the other things they're doing. And one of the great things that our, why our businesses continue to evolve and get better and better is we have amazing relationships with people like yourself who have actually come back to our organization and say, go pick up the challenger sale. You know, there's, there's opportunities to sort of illuminate and make your sales process better. Because um, if, if I had you come back and see our sales process, you would see, wow, there's a lot more going on in what, what we taught you 20 years ago. Um, and um, obviously, there's just a lot more going on in the world. Um, you know, but one of the things we love to say is, is the top salespeople ask six times more questions. And clearly, they can talk because you and I clearly on this podcast do a lot of talking um, and sharing and, and with great energy and interest and flavor. But what's most important is really listening. And are you listening and you're really hearing what that, that client needs? So you're so right. Yeah, no, I'm smiling because I, I, I remember when I first started out, um, so after Student Works Painting, it was like you were going into these boardrooms to sell to, we sold to banks, still a whole bunch of things, and you knew you had an hour. So you had your PowerPoint deck, you had everything that you were going to say, you were very prepared, and you, and you wanted to talk the whole time so that they wouldn't ask you a question to screw you up. I mean, I'm right? <laughs> And now it's like, oh my God, I better not be talking the whole time. I should be talking yes. maybe 15, 20 minutes. Let's find out. Let's ask questions. Let's explore. Yes. But I think I think our and it was probably nerves and it was probably, yeah. you know, a whole bunch of, you know, inexperience and all these different things that you yeah. learn along the way. But I mean that was that was the way we sort of started. So yeah. So, and you've really developed So to close yeah. off the uh, yeah, so to close off the sort of the the, the history of Steve. So now I'm at a, a great company called Horizon. And I started at Horizon two and a half years ago. And so I finished my time at, at Nomus, um, enjoyed it, great people, great individuals, learned a lot. Um, and then I sort of started looking and saying, and maybe it happens every five years or three or five years or something. I started going, okay, what's next, Steve? What are you going to do next? And I right. swear to God, Chris, the easiest thing probably would have been just, you know, I look at my career to stay longer at these places. But it goes to that third component is I got to be learning. I got to be going to do mm -hmm. something else. So it was pretty clear what I wanted to do. And all through my career, I have focused on banking, right? Because I think, yes. I believe, I believe when you're thinking at your, your career and what are you going to do, if you can get a common theme, then you become much more intelligent, more valuable, and you can deliver uh, the different results. So for me, and I wish I said I had planned it to be into banking, but you know, you start you start somewhere, and then you go, oh, gee whiz, I've, I've actually worked for you know two companies for that sold sure. in the banks. This is kind of good. Maybe I'm good at this. And so now I'm very focused. I you know I couldn't imagine selling to anything but banks now because I've kind of figured this out. And it's the big. They've got they've got money. They're complex. And you've got relationships. Got, right? relationship. got relationships. A track record. Yes. Yeah. And there's a bunch of people in this world that think it's difficult to sell the banks. And meanwhile, that's all I've done. So I don't know anything else. So I'm kind of like, absolutely, yeah. it's very difficult. Um, but uh, and, 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 that's, and that's the focus. But but what I wanted to do was I wanted to get into the digital size of banks. So you know everybody understands that the world of uh, is becoming digital. And 
I didn't entirely know what that meant for a bank. So I started to look for a company um, that was selling into, you know, fintech company selling into to banks, solving a specific problem, which I believed was very large in the industry. And I think right. when you're picking companies, if, and listen, we're, you throw darts to a certain degree, um, you, do your, you do your investigating, but it, as long as you can get close to that dartboard and, 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 and hit it, it makes such a difference on being able to find the right company at the right time for you to be able to deliver results, right? So right. for, for the, the interesting component with this company was they were focused on digital adoption. How do you actually get more people banking on their phones versus uh, going into branches, et cetera? And, you know, that, that's, a, that, that's definitely topical, definitely a need. So I started with Horizon two and a half years ago, and we had one bank. Um, and what my job was, was to be able to help the organization grow to many banks. And right. what, what we've been able to do over the last two and a half years is pretty remarkable. Is we've we've grown it to fifteen banks, and some of the biggest names in the industry, like Wells Fargo, U.S. Bank, Royal Bank of Canada, Lloyd's, and we did this not only in in Canada, but we did it in the U.S. and then now we've also done it in the U.K. as well. So, so for me, and I look back, right that that that. Fun, right? That's fun for me. Yeah. When I talk about fun, I, I don't just mean you know partying or, or, or drinking or anything. What, I, what I'm actually no. what I'm actually talking about is is that at the end of it, when you can actually go and say, "Hey, I started. We started here with one bank two and a half years ago. We put a plan in place. We executed on the plan. We readjusted the plan probably ten times. But 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 what we were able to do is now have fifteen financial large financial institutions working with us, partnering with." And we're yeah. working with them on solving one of their greatest challenges, which is digitizing the bank. And I got to tell you, I'm just honored and privileged to be able to go into these institutions, to be able to sit with them, to be able to understand what they're trying to accomplish, to be able to provide value, experience, knowledge on what I'm seeing across the world, and then be able to talk to these people about that. And I think that comes back to that whole challenger sales component where you're able to be in a boardroom with a bunch of people and say, and someone's presenting and saying, this is the way we're going to do it. And you're able to say, great strategy, but have you thought about doing it this way? Because here's what we've seen. Okay. Yes. And, and if you can provide, if you can provide value every time that you talk to one of your prospects, they're going to take your call. They're going to return your email and they're going to buy for you. And the, the cool thing, Stephen, and for a lot of people think, Banks are so smart, and they are. They have so many smart people, especially the senior level, some best compensated, smartest people in the entire world. And so um, so what you've got, though, Stephen, is you're working with one bank, then all of a sudden 15 banks dealing with these specific problems. This bank's dealing with their specific problems. So you actually all of a sudden become the real expert for them in solving their problems because you're seeing it happen at this bank and happen at this bank. and then. You make strides to to address the issue at that bank, and then you're bringing it over to other banks. And again, not competitive situations, but solving this digital banking opportunity, right? And making real strides. So, so you guys are at the forefront of it, um, and can become such a key ally for that business. Yeah, and that's fun. That's interesting, right? So, yes. So, I think I think throughout all of you know, if you think there was a bit of a long history there of uh, of what Steve's been up to, but 
what what the common theme is and what sort of my thoughts are on this is is that if if you have an entrepreneurial you know mind or you know thought process you know desire i strongly believe you can be an entrepreneur within an organization um by working in smaller organizations thinking of the sales process as your franchise to a certain degree right so exactly. that that concept of this is great. I'm working at XYZ company. I am running sales or participating in the sales process. And, and I've got this franchise to a certain degree. Okay. So I've got this great company that deals with payroll. Yeah. I've got this great company that deals with technology, all this other yeah. stuff that Steve really doesn't necessarily understand or want to deal with. And I, <laughs> I get to focus 100% of my time on doing what I love, which is sales. Yeah. And yeah. you're on a variable compensation plan, which delivers a lot of the benefit of running your own business because the more you put in or compensation that you're going to get at, at a situation where all of a sudden you don't have necessarily all of the risks, all of the different components that may or may not be be important to you. So what, one of my big things is, is that I love my family and I want to spend time with my family. So I don't want to work on the weekends. I don't want to work on the weekends. Which is so cool. Which is kind of that interesting thing and not, you know, and, and I, I've read this other, oh, I've read this other saying, which was, um, with every decision that you make, there's some good, there's some bad, yeah. and time yeah. will tell, right? So time will tell whether you make the right decision <laughs> on it, right? And, 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 and not every decision yeah. you're going to make is right. So, so I think the good part is all those things that I, I say. The challenging part is, is, is that what you're building within an organization isn't necess- isn't necessarily yours. So you'll have stock options. You'll have this different different components. So so that's the, that's the negative part about it is, is that you yeah. think about all this energy, everything that you put into it. It's great compensation. You build this. You find a lot of fun. But then when you walk away, you're starting over. So I think I think that's the only challenge. Is is yeah. and there's probably more than that. But but it's that it's that idea that but but wait, what if I had built blank over X number of years and then I was able to sell blank. To be able to profit or whatever the case is, so 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 I think that's the only that's the only challenge in what I what I've done. It. It, it's it's and, it, and it's one of those issues about really first world problems, right? Just because <laughs> of you know, just just for our young leaders, Stephen has done incredibly well, um, you know, uh, and and highly compensated, etc. But I, but I, but you know, again, there's so many amazing. We're so fortunate to be living in Canada and 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 you know having these. Uh, and then also being able to really work worldwide as you gain more and more skills so that so that, again, the opportunities are really just so boundless. But let's one great question I want to ask, because I've just got a couple opportunities for a couple more questions is, is what about failures or mistakes? Like thinking about that, Steve, like what sort of setbacks have you had and lessons you've learned from? Because I know that's how you're going to frame it. <laughs> yeah. So you're I think we, we <laughs> often say in sales, you're either earning or learning. Um, and, and, and I think when I look back, there've been a couple of significant deals, opportunities that I've lost and, you know, don't win them all. But what I believe wholeheartedly is, is that every opportunity that you're working on, you have a hundred percent chance. You have the hundreds of opportunity to be able to close that deal, to be able to win it. And I do think about it. I mean, right. for competition, I think of it as a challenge, right? You're competing with these other guys. Yeah. So what I, 
what I think the biggest failures that when I look back on are big opportunities that I didn't do my job on. And when I okay. think about that is, is that these complex sales, really understanding who is making the decision, how many of those people are making those decisions, and then why weren't my bases up? And we can all live on hopes and dreams, um, but you really need to, to be able to close significant size opportunities or even smaller opportunities, you really need to know who's calling the shots and what's happened. So when I, when I think about you know, a couple of opportunities, I didn't do my job and I didn't, I, I, didn't, I didn't have all of my bases covered. I didn't work hard enough to truly understand what that opportunity was, who were the key influencers, who were making the decisions, what were the red flags on the, on the deal that I should have un, 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 uncovered, and, and, that, and that's on me. And I think that yeah. pain, so that learning, which is sometimes painful, is ensuring that next opportunity that you have is to make sure that you are got a strategy in place, got all your bases covered, you understand truly how a decision is being made, and then you go from there. Yeah, and I hear, and again, for, for the leaders, I want you, everyone to get, like it's it's not about winning and losing, and of course it is, but it's about one of the things I hear the regret a lot of times is I didn't do everything I could have done, right? Like if we go full out and we leave it all on the court and we weren't chosen, okay, I couldn't get that des- decision maker. I knew it was him or I knew it was her and she was going to decide and I just couldn't get around it and they chose this other good supplier. Okay, but I actually wasn't aware that it was this person. I wasn't aware this person was dragging their feet because I didn't do the deal. I did, sorry, I didn't work hard enough. Totally. Like, you know, to me, I, I, I totally can so relate to that. You know, it's like, I want to do everything I can to deliver value. So I totally can hear, see that, Steve. So if you were to, if you were to say, hey, what key habits or what, what's your secret to success, Steve? Secret to success, I think, is really making sure that you understand what is important to you. And what I mean by that is, is that we can think about going and getting a job. We can go think about starting up a company, but, but why are we doing that? And, and I think the biggest part is, is looking at, okay, so life's expensive. Maybe you're young, you're thinking about you know, getting married, having kids, et cetera. What does life really look like? What, are you, what does life look like? And I don't mean the guidance counselor of, hey, you're gonna become a lawyer or you're gonna become whatever the case might be. I think it's understanding what your own personal influences are and your goals are, and then starting at that point where I want to be able to have my weekends off. I want to be able to have a cottage. I want to be able to raise two families. I would raise two kids, not two families, two kids. I want to raise two, <laughs> two kids who are going to play hockey, who are going to be in piano, who are going to ha- never want for anything, right? Because you're going to provide it for them. Okay, so you start figuring that out, okay? And, and whether that's in your 20s or your 30s or whatever that is, and I think you've got to keep coming back to it because worlds change, you change, everybody's change. Is that, is, is that every year, two years, having that moment of self-reflection and saying, am I, am I actually doing what I, I, everything I can be to be able to attain what I want to be able to do? Right. And, and, you know, what I mean by that is, is that, like, if I think about my guidance counselor days, like, when I thought about becoming a, a lawyer or an accountant, I don't think anybody really explained to me that you're really running your own business, right? So I've got lots of lawyer friends and they're all running their own business. But 
But when you're, you know, when I was back in the guidance counselor's office when I was 18 and I was trying to figure out what university I was going to and what courses I could and really making big time life decisions, I don't think I ever thought about a lawyer being running their own business, right? So, so, so I guess my advice is that it's just to make sure you look at what kind of life you want to live, what's important to you at that moment in time, and then just make sure that you're in a vehicle to be able to get you to that point. Awesome. Awesome. I love that. I love that. And again, I, I love also as well, you highlighting that again, and you know, an accountant, a lawyer, they're really running their, their own business, sales, marketing, you know, uh, you know, delivering value, the, that, that whole concept that, that you're, you're learning in a program like ours uh, just makes all the difference, you know, like, like really getting the results economy, really getting, Hey, I'm, I'm creating results in the world. So. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a, I think there's a spectrum of entrepreneurial now. Now, I, the people yeah. who like yourself, the people like, I don't know, the Marcus Van de Brinks of the world, I do tip my cap to you guys because you're true entrepreneurs. We're, <laughs> we're probably sort of somewhere in the middle of that. So, so, so for people right. who go out and truly start their own business, go through that pain, go through challenging times to fight through that, to build an empire, I, mean, I tip my hat to, to, to you folks. You guys are true entrepreneurs. We're, we're probably... A bit of pretend entrepreneurs, but we like to think we are. <laughs> pretend, pretend entrepreneur. I, I consider you an entrepreneur. My my feeling, my feeling in sort of the entrepreneur scale is really, really the people who are are, are true entrepreneurs are are the people who really, really created new industries. Like in your working with some real true entrepreneurs, like Ethica and these brands that that really have created whole new spaces. You know, and uh, it's just. It's remarkable what they what they do. So again, I, I see as well. There's a scale, right? There's a scale of entrepreneurship, and and again, it's it, there. There's you know one of the things as well that it's 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 important as well not to feel less than. It's like wow, isn't that wonderful what they've created? And again, to admire and say what's the look look at the value that they've created in the world. Um, but uh, but but yeah, and then just get get busy and get back to work and add value to your customers because that's really what it's always about. So. When you think of a leader of tomorrow, Steve, what comes to mind? So I think the leader of tomorrow is definitely different than the leader of maybe five years or maybe 10 years ago. So I think when we think about the new entrance into the workforce, when we think about um, changing of the world, the, the hierarchy structure, I think, has to be very different than what it was in the past. because we're hiring smart people, and those smart people have to be free to be able to make decisions and to be able to, to proceed. So I believe the leader of tomorrow, and this is a, this is a, a quote from Joe Grano, who used to run uh, uh, UBS, uh, and he told me one time, he was on our board, what he told me one time is, is that he always had a 5% where, where 95% of the time he hired smart people to make smart decisions. And that's how he ran it. And he would let them make the decisions 95% of the time. Right. Then there was 5% of the time. And he would tell his, 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 his senior execs that we're in the five. And everybody knew that we were in the five and Joe was going to call the shot on this, on this deal. But I, but I think that's important because leaders of tomorrow's are hiring really good, smart individuals. We probably have more educated workforce than we've ever had because everybody's going to do to, to advanced schooling, et cetera. So you're hiring smart people. If you're hiring smart people, you've got to let them make the decisions. Otherwise, we shouldn't be hiring smart people, right? Because if we're just hiring people to tell them what to do, you probably don't need the smartest people out there. So 
So what I think the biggest thing from the leader of tomorrow is, and maybe I'll just say, is that that 95-5 rule. Let your people that you hire make 95% of the decisions. If they're smart people, that's why you hired them. And then you've got your 5% rule that enables you to uh, to come down when the time is, uh, is, is appropriate to be able to make that rule. Love it. Love it. Oh, I just love that. Uh, love that answer, Steve. So, so Steve, what we're going to do is we're going to, uh, I, I wanted to, to, to thank you so much for, 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 you know, taking time your crazy busy schedule and all the value that you're creating in the world today. So, uh, so you have a fantastic day and, uh, uh, again, thanks so much. Absolutely. Thanks, Chris. An absolute pleasure. Hey leaders. I hope you enjoyed this episode. By now you are aware that we work with ambitious students every single year to not only help them run their first successful business, but to further their development as a leader and give them an unfair advantage in the future over their counterparts. It's why starting now and only for the next few weeks, we'll be on campuses across Ontario, Quebec, and the East Coast interviewing students who think they have what it takes to start their first business and get started down their path of entrepreneurship. If you think you have what it takes or know someone who might be interested visit leaderspodcast.ca slash apply and start your application process today. Once again, it's leaderspodcast.ca slash apply. And I can't wait to see you on the other side.